0: To be joined today by Ryan Grimm. He's, of course, a uh, colleague of mine, co-host of Counterpoints, um, also journalist and author of a new book, The Squad, AOC and the Hope of a Political Revolution. Great to see you, Ryan.
1: Thanks for having me on here.
0: Um, so I feel like there was a chance that this book came out and it kind of got like totally overshadowed because of what's going on in mm-hmm. Israel, Gaza and all eyes are there, et cetera, et cetera. But it's actually amazing how much of this book pertains to. Mm-hmm. Israel Israel politics and APAC, and Democratic majority for Israel and how much that has shaped the squad and the opposition to the squad. So just talk to us about the original idea for the book and some of those threads that run through
1: yeah, it. Yeah, and w- when I finished the book, I thought, when people read this, they're going to think I'm crazy for how much I focused on the role of Israel-Palestine as an issue and how it shaped Democratic Party politics and the squad itself. And how much I focused on DMFI and Mark Melman, the guy who founded that, uh, you know, Reed Hoffman, mm-hmm. our, our old friend, uh, who <laughs> yes. kind of allied with them to spend money against the squad and other progressives. And then the rise of APAC in, in 2021. DMFI is kind of an offshoot of APAC, but then APAC itself comes in in 2022 with a 30, 40 million dollar spend. So I thought people would be like, OK, that's kind of interesting, but it's a side issue. It's It doesn't deserve to be kind of half of the book. But. As this war has unfolded, and as APAC has announced you know that or has has kind of signaled that they're going to spend a hundred million dollars going after you know lefty Democrats in primaries, uh the question is maybe it actually should have been more of the book and I think the the number one criticism I've gotten of the idea of the book has been like who cares like these people are boring, we're done with these people, but to me, if anybody's going to spend a hundred million dollars to get rid of them then that suggests that there's something there so on on this particular issue
2: i've said this on my show too first of all i was surprised second of all it's the most proud i've ever been of the justice democrats Mm -hmm. as you know i'm a co-founder of the justice democrats and um what you really saw was i don't remember the exact number between 15 and 20 Democrats yeah. now calling for a ceasefire and most of them are justice democrats.
0: You have actually 31 democrats now. So then that I think list has grown. 24 on the yep. latest, uh, that, that came out. That
2: list has grown and many of them are, you know, the most prominent faces right. of the justice democrats. Uh, are you as surprised as I am that this was the issue where they sort of broke away and made a clear distinction with the rest of the democrats where they're like, mm-hmm. look, we got to do a ceasefire. We see all these innocent people being killed. And they're like the only voices standing up and saying that along with Thomas Massey, who's like a Ron Paul style libertarian. Are you as surprised as I am that this was the thing where they took a stand?
1: I think in some ways they were left with no choice after, after 2022 in particular, that APAC and DMFI made it clear, like we're, we're wiping you out no matter what. So at that point you're like, I might as well fight on this question. I was surprised at how it unfolded. And you remember, uh, and you can testify to this directly. I'm, cu- I'm curious for your take on it. I talked to Walid and others about the founding of, of Justice Democrats and the recruiting of the candidates. And Israel-Palestine was not an issue that they either had a litmus test on, or that was even kind of at the table as something that, okay, th- we need to get a block of candidates so that they can then win and then fight for Palestinian rights. Like Nobody kind of disagreed with Palestinian rights. There were no supporters of the occupation, but it was about Medicare for all, mm-hmm. a higher minimum wage, more labor rights, combating climate change, which eventually evolves into the Green New Deal. Like those were the animate you know, class war and what's flowed out of Occupy in the Bernie Sanders 2015-2016 campaign that animated not just us as Democrats, but a lot of these candidates. Now, obviously, Rashida Tlaib is Palestinian American. That's been something that she's you know fought. On her entire life And she represents Dearborn She's somewhat of a unique case I write in the book about uh, The trajectory that AOC took After her June 2018 primary victory Like at that point I was like Nobody even remembers the name of the guy You, you do because you're from Virginia uh, <laughs> the, Who beat Eric Cantor It was like he just became the David guy David Brett There you go yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: He's the guy who mm-hmm. beat Eric Cantor
1: And now he was beaten by Abigail Spanberger Right. Oh, that's so, okay. yeah uh,
0: Perhaps our next so, governor.
1: But that's his thing. I beat Eric Cantor. And so everybody thought kind of at the time, okay, this person whose name we can't pronounce, her thing is gonna be that she beat Joe Crowley. But then it became clear after several weeks, as she's getting more and more TV hits and her global star is rising, that she's not gonna be the person that just beat Joe Crowley. People are gonna forget who Joe Crowley even is. She's she's now AOC. Like she's becoming this national celebrity. Then she does this interview where Israel-Palestine comes up. Do you remember that? Was it with Glenn Greenwald? No, I think it was with the firing line. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was like a mainstream one. Uh, uh, Yeah, so this is good context. So May 2018, the the Great March of Return, which people have brought up again in the context of the the violence uh, enacted by Hamas, to say, look, Palestinian civil society in Gaza tried the Great March of Return in 2018 to 2019. What that was, every Friday... People would go down and started, just su- su- it was civil society started, wasn't Hamas created. Uh, they would go down, they would picnic, uh, they would uh, kind of like have a festival, and then they would march to the fence in a nonviolent way, saying like, as a symbolic way of like returning to their land, which they could see on the other side of the fence. And then the IDF starts shooting at them. And famously, they start shooting at legs. And so you have amputees all over Gaza for years. After that, they killed you know several hundred of them, and then the extremist elements say, "See, we told you. Like, you can't, you can't do nonviolent civil disobedience." So, amid one of those massacres, AOC posted on Twitter, "Israel should not be mowing down peaceful protesters." Like our <laughs> Democrat, how that's controversial. Yes, the right? Democratic Party <laughs> needs to stand up for that. And Glenn saw that post. And he's like, "Wow, it's somebody running in New York, who's willing to say that?" He, he interviewed her about that. And then she then got asked about it a month or two after winning the primary, and she's like, "Yeah, people shouldn't get mowed down. Like that's," and and she compared it to, if if there were sixty people get who got killed at a, a nonviolent protest in Puerto Rico, I would find that outrageous. I found what happened in Ferguson outrageous. I found what happened in Standing Rock outrageous. And she lumped them all together as nonviolent protesters against oppression—a completely reasonable thing. And then the pro—and then the interviewer says something like. You used the word Palestine. Mm. What do you mean by the word Palestine? Yeah, and then she sort of. And I've rewatched this interview, and and you can see her just like go cult like
0: a little deer in yeah. the headlights because like,
1: she it. wasn't really that educated on it. Yeah, she's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. She, she didn't know. Like she's like she knows there's third rails on this mm-hmm. issue, but you, she doesn't know what they are. So it's like, did I just touch one? Am I not allowed to say Palestine? Uh, and she's like, I just believe people should have dignity and rights. She's like, but wh- say again, what, who, how, how are they going to get that without, you know, Israel being eliminated from the face of the earth? She's like, well, uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. Mm. And then, f- and then f- she just taps out. She's like, her phrase was something like, I'm not, the, I'm not an expert on geopolitics. And then later she explained to me, and, and this is in the book, that, that she's like, look, among Puerto Ricans in the Bronx, it's just not something that we sit around at the dinner table and talk about. Like, I support Palestinian rights as far as we understood the issue in high school and college. But it wasn't something that we talked about. Summer Lee told me the exact same thing, because her race uh, became all about Israel-Palestine. And she's like, in Pittsburgh, and in in the state senate in Pennsylvania even. Like, it's just not something we talk about. And Summer Lee, the thing she got in trouble for, it was just two posts, a thread, also about Gaza during 2021, during the last, or actually the second last round of bombing. There was another short run in 2022. She just said, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter activists here in the United States see what's going on there and we understand the the, the type of oppression. And you had people in Pittsburgh saying that she compared what's going on to Palestinians with what happens to African-Americans here in the United States. And that is deeply dangerous rhetoric and she needs to be eliminated. And they spent millions of dollars in Pittsburgh to try to beat her. And she hung on. She yeah, but there on. were
0: many who didn't. I mean, you right. also talk about Nina uh, Turner, Nina Turner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and all mm-hmm. the money that flooded in. And probably what got more attention was the half a bowl of shit comments. Right. But the groups that elevated those comments, right. put them on TV everywhere and APEC. took it from, you know, Nina was about to win in a blowout to her losing by, I think it was five, was, you know, the groups that you're tracking over her support for Palestinian rights, and so one of the things that you uh, lay out here, which I think may give some insight into whatever the hell is going on with Senator John Fetterman right now, mm-hmm. is that there were many candidates who saw that and they said, "Not worth it."
1: Yeah, and A- you saw back,
0: he- tell me what to say and I'll say it. Just stay out of my race. And
1: he literally did that. The, so during the during the primary, uh, if you remember, what, who Connor Lamb? That was yeah. the 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 right wing congressman who yes. just out of the 2006 Rahm Emanuel playbook, 100%. Uh, he's like, he's the C's guy. He's, he's on his way to the Senate. Uh, but he couldn't raise the same amount of money that Fetterman could. Fetterman was lieutenant governor. He was widely popular around the state. And he's down, like, Connor Lamb finds himself down to this doofus. <laughs> like, how is this <laughs> how, To this ogre. This ogre. <laughs> like, how is this possible? And if you remember, he started putting out all of these calls publicly. And his, his brother or cousin, whoever that other lamb is, uh kept putting out calls for super PAC money. They were putting out memos, analyses, like, here are the targets that work. Here's how much money we would need. We don't have it, but if, if, if somebody would run ads with these messages, with this amount of money in these regions, we will beat John Fetterman. And so Fetterman reached out to DMFI. His campaign reached out. They met. They talked about what his Israel-Palestine platform should be. Uh, he wrote an Israel-Palestine platform, sent it to DMFI, and they've confirmed this on the record. They edited it, sent him back notes. They're like, this is really good. Couple notes here. He They accepted all the notes, track changes, like accept, <laughs> accept, <laughs> accept. Boom. This is my Israel policy. DMFI is good. DMF AIPAC is good. They don't... And they stay out. They okay. stay out. Wow. And he wins. And... This and this, and then the, uh, some other and I write about a couple other House candidates that did that, but lots of House candidates did this. Wow, yeah, yeah. that's shockingly corrupt, it's almost wild. like
2: comically
1: corrupt. Yeah.
0: Well, and is it your sense that like, because man, he's gone all in. Like it's Th- not just flipster. Inex- I mean, that inexplicable. Wrapping himself right. in the Israeli flag cr- and jeering at protesters. I mean, it's embarrassing. And, yeah. yeah. So I mean, is it just like. He decided, I'm just, I'm already on the record. I'm going to go all in on this. Is there some previous record of him being super, super pro-Israel and not willing to be critical of anything they do whatsoever? Like, do you have a uh, sense well, of that?
1: Unlike most of these other Democrats who were running in blue districts and only had to win the primary, uh, like Greg Kassar, for instance, um, he he moderated his uh, Palestine, uh, his, his like, uh, his I forget exactly all the details of what he did, but he wrote a letter to a rabbi saying, like, I support this, I support this, I support this. That letter was published, and they were like, okay, we're not going to challenge this guy. He has since been an outspoken opponent of the war. He's signed on to some Betty McCollum bills. I think uh, APAC deeply regrets kind of letting him get through, and now that he's gotten through, it's going to be very hard for them to beat him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he's, he's
0: on a- all the ceasefire, calls for a ceasefire yeah. and all that stuff. So Maxwell
1: they, Frost, too, similar. Right? Yeah, and he's, he's, he hasn't gone as far as Kassar, but, but he... Uh, has, yeah, what he called for a ceasefire. Uh, he he, vote, he voted against um, APAC on a couple of uh, resolutions, but then he apologized for how he voted on one mm. of them. But it's it'll be tough for them to beat him now that he's in. Fetterman is different in that not only could they take him out in a Democratic primary. Uh, they could fund the Republican. They could fund a yeah. Republican. But even that doesn't quite explain, like... Yeah, he dove into the deep end. Waving wa- wa- sure. wa- the flag at the veterans getting arrested outside the Senate office building. Like, at some point, you're like, okay, we, we get it. Like, so
2: what you're saying is it's not just ideological that the Justice Democrats are standing up and saying we're for a ceasefire. With The interesting point you're making is that it actually also is based on the money because APAC and DMFI they've made crystal clear no pun intended that they you we're coming for you guys. Yeah. So it's like they they have absolutely nothing to lose and they're like yeah, we might as well stand up and fight because it is morally and ideologically the correct thing to do but also like I'm not going to get any money from you guys, and you're going to fund opponents. So if anything, maybe I try to rally the base to raise small dollar donations by standing up on this issue or something to that effect, right? Like I'm sure has yeah. seen a big boom in mm-hmm. in contributions since she has been targeted. Right, she's been censured for basically being a Palestinian American.
1: And I I love how open uh, Summer Lee was with me about her thinking about her own race because I asked her, I, I pointed to some of the other races where people had moderated their their stances, and therefore had avoided the, the targeting by APAC and DMFI. I was like, did you think about doing that? She, and she's like, no, because I knew that it wouldn't work. Mm. Not, not, she wasn't like, no, I would never compromise it's quite a bit of foresight. my values. She's like, no, she's like, they were coming for me, like absolutely coming for me. Because it wasn't, and this is the other thing, it's not just about Israel-Palestine. Like all, all of these candidates also happen to be the ones that are challenging corporate power. That want, right. that want higher yeah. taxes, that want to close the loopholes on the private right. equity people that fund these.
0: And that's where so, the Reed Hoffman but, and the right. Main Street Democrats yeah. quote unquote
1: But let's let's get into
2: that though because uh, you know my reading of the situation is that this really is one of the first times I've been very proud of the Justice mm-hmm. Democrats because they're standing up and fighting and it's like thank God you're all seeing what we're seeing and we're not crazy. It's, you know 66% of the country is calling for a ceasefire. You're the only people in D.C. that are standing up and making the argument. But uh, interested your perspective on this when I look at like Almost all of the other issues, save maybe a few, mm-hmm. I feel like you guys kind of are going along to get along with the rest of the Democratic Party line. Do
1: yeah, you, how do you do? You see that differently? No, that's that's so, and that's what the other half of the book is about. You know, the the like different compromises that even like people who have come in with like this head full of steam like are faced with, and what decisions you know they end up they end up making because. Uh, that you have choices between kind of working within your caucus or and you know alienating your caucus and and there was a huge divide and and this takes up a lot of the first half of the book within AOC's office where you had on the one hand you guys know Troy Cott and mm-hmm. who was her chief of staff uh, and Corbin Trent another uh, two other co-founders of Justice, Justice Democrats Democrat. and, and Dan Riffle who had who was her that the legislative aide who had his uh, Twitter handle was uh, every every. Billionaire as a policy failure, mm-hmm. and they were these, you know, outspoken, and their their argument was, "There's nothing to work with here, right? Like, there's no point, like." And that was our that's my right. was
2: my analysis as well. What,
1: yeah. what we ought to do is just sh- show the contrast, build power on the outside, make a beachhead so that to apply pressure, to apply pressure, to, yeah, to
2: force people to do the right thing, yeah.
1: Right, and f- for the most part, they did not do that. Like they they. Uh, worked within the system and one of the one of the uh, critiques and I'm curious for your take on this that Corbin had was they were never set up to be a squad like the squad came together as sort of a branding moment uh, i think it was an inst- it was an instagram post that like a where AOC was, that... was like squad yeah. and everybody started calling them squad and but it, they didn't really know each other that well right like i Iana had come to new york to to support AOC. AOC went to Boston. AOC later went to St. Louis for Cori Bush in 2018, but did not even endorse her in, yep. in 2020. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, both Rashida and Ilhan and Ayanna had been previous legislators, like state Senate, state House, city council. And I- Ayana in particular kind of, I think, saw the like energy going that direction. She'd been a Hillary Clinton 2016 yeah. person, yeah. Um, t- uh, trashing Medicare for all and trashing Bernie. Mm-hmm. Um, For the record, I was skeptical for
2: when she became a Justice Democrat. There were voices of dissent where I was like, I don't know if I like this. It seems like a branding exercise. But to your point... So when we founded Justice Democrats, we vetted uh, mostly on policy. So the most important thing was you have Mm -hmm. to say, I'm not taking any corporate PAC money. That was rule number one. And this was Jenks' biggest thing. And we agreed. Uh, In retrospect, I probably would have gone further and said we should only raise through small dollar donations, which is a bigger claim Mm -hmm. and it's a harder thing to do. But so we vetted on policy. In retrospect, when I look at it, I think our biggest failure uh, in founding the group is that we vetted on policy, but we did not vet on what I'd call leadership skills which is what you're talking about, which is like, once you get into the halls of power, how are you going to organize with your fellow justice Democrats? How are you going to drive a hard bargain and and run a hard line? Sort of like the Tea Party did where they had their little breakaway caucus where like they were making the demands and the rest of the party had to come along with it from our perspective. And now, of course, I'm a massive outsider. haven't talked to AOC in years. When I look in there, I see she got in there and she thought I'm Probably more likely to make change if I go along to get along a little bit with Pelosi and leadership. And then I think what happens over time is you just sort of lose, uh, you know, you lose your direction and you just sort of go along to get along where you're not really pushing on almost anything. Again, Mm -hmm. that's why on on this, I'm very proud of them for the ceasefire stuff. But like everything else, it just struck me as like, you're just... Like a standard Democrat in many ways.
0: Well, one of the things that comes out in the book, Ryan, that I found really interesting is like, yes, AOC did this big thing in challenging Joe Crowley, you know, coming mm-hmm. from the outside, doing that, accomplishing it. And so she was cast in the role as this like outsider firebrand, but it's not actually consistent with her personality right. She's very, according you know, to your reporting here, very non-confrontational. She wants people to like her. Mm-hmm. She wants to get along with her colleagues. And so, you know, what we could see from the outside is genuinely what was kind of happening on the inside where when she's coming from the outside and she's not trying to get along with Nancy Pelosi and co, she's doing the occupation of Pelosi's office and she's letting her staffers kind of run wild and say whatever mm-hmm. they want on Twitter and get into these fights. But the longer she's there the more she becomes concerned with, all right, how do I get along? How do I make sure I can like be productive on the inside and not rock the boat too much? Because that's just kind of her like, this is you know not an excuse for people who are very disappointed with her as I am too. But those are her natural personality characteristics are not actually those of a fuck you, we're coming for you, um, turn over the tables firebrand.
1: Right, right, and you can, and it's fine to make that a criticism too I think because People, I think, rightly expected that that's what they were getting. Right.
2: Well, uh, yeah. Well, well, then what then we also, thought we were creating when we created the group, that was it, what we thought we were a left Tea Party. That was the original working name of Justice Democrats. A lot of people don't know. Oh, no, really. It was the left Tea Party. And then we had conversations and decided we'll go with Justice Democrats because it changes the context. We didn't want people to think we're ideologically aligned with the Tea Party, I guess. So, but anyway.
0: Yeah. Well, and not only that, but, you know, I'm I'm sure you sometimes feel uncomfortable, like pressing members of Congress or people in power, asking them uncomfortable questions. Like you kind of signed up for a role where you're gonna be uncomfortable and you're gonna see ugly things Mm -hmm. and people are gonna say ugly things about you and the media might turn on you. And people are counting on you to deal with that discomfort. So I think it's a, a criticism in that way too. But you have an anecdote in the book, you know, pertaining to Israel-Palestine that I think is very illustrative of exactly this conflict, which is over funding the mm. Iron Dome, which is sort of like a famous moment. Maybe you can break yeah. that down for us and what you learned about how that all unfolded.
1: Right. So, and, it, and it's wild when you think about uh, how, how it went down because... Uh, so Steny, so basically, they tried to attach a billion dollars in funding to a, a particular spending bill, and Jaya Paul and and the squad, and then a handful of others, Marie Newman and, and some others, uh, said, you know, we're not we're not going for this, and that that was nine votes. You can't pass it without them, and so they said, okay, well, we're taking the billion, they were taking the money for the Iron Dome out, and it was the first time that had ever happened that. And Axios wrote, noted that like never in American history has Israel lost anything ever in Congress, <laughs> <laughs> and, and they lost that. So then the foreign minister of Israel, um, y- Yair Lapid at the oh, time, oh that guy's a mm. <laughs> who is Mark, who is Mark Melman's client. Mark Melman is the head of DMF. Oh boy, and so people have said, wait a minute, why is this not Foreign Agent Registration Act stuff? Like you're working for. You're working for Yair Lapid, a foreign... Right. Who's in the government of this other... Right. other. But it's like, well, th- then it's almost like, what, what are, you, are you saying that Israel's a foreign country? Yeah, you're anti-Semitic. <laughs> yeah. It's not a foreign country, it's Israel. Mm-hmm. How dare there you? There's an exception to Pharaoh when it comes to that. So Yair Lapid calls Steny Hoyer. It's like, what happened? And Steny Hoyer tells him, look, sorry, it's, it's just a hiccup, just a thing, don't worry, we're going to get it done. And so <sighs> they're, well, he, they're like, we want it alone on the floor. Like to show them that we can get this passed, and so they they're like, all right, you got it, billion dollars on the floor. Elon uh, Omar calls him. It's like you got to give us time for this. Like you can't just slap this on the floor tomorrow. AOC calls him. It's like give give us some Jamal Bowman called him. Like come on, you can't just throw a billion dollar, you know, billion dollars for Israel on the floor in like 24 hours and expect us all to be ready to vote on this. He's like no, and he told Elon Omar he's like no, the uh, Israeli government wants this to happen. It's happening. So. <sighs> They put it on the floor. Uh, Jamal Bowman told me he's getting like enormous numbers of calls to to support this from his district.
2: A very Jewish district, for those who don't know. I actually grew up in Jamal Bowman's district.
1: And virtually zero from his district saying vote no on this. Um, AOC at the time uh, was disinvited from going to like a synagogue in her district, which is kind of a shocking thing for a member of Congress to be told like that you're not, you're unwelcome somewhere, especially if you're one of the most famous like politicians in the world. Right. So this vote comes, uh, she goes on the floor, uh, she votes no. And then she comes back to the cloak room and she sees, uh, Rashida and Ilhan. And she's like, I, I don't think I can, I don't think I can go through with this. And they're, they're like, look, um, and yeah, this is might be the anecdote you're referring to, like, um, Ilhan's like, look, you gotta like, just do whatever you've got to do. Like, it's fine. She's like, just don't go out there and cry. <laughs> and, and, Rash- and Rashida's like, you know Stop telling people not to cry. Because <laughs> Rashida famously, you know, the she water, lets she lets yeah. it fly. And good for her. Uh, AOC did not take that advice. She went out and switched her vote to present. And then she sees Pelosi. And Pelosi told her, just vote your conscience. And that, like, triggered something in her. Um, and then, you yeah, know, the waterworks turned on. Uh, and wh- the way what she later explained, and this goes to the, the way that she wants to be both the radical and the consensus builder yep
2: that's right
1: she she said that she felt that if she voted no, that she would not be able to then be a mediator between all the the viciousness in her district, between the people on both sides that she and and that 's probably related to being disinvited from the synagogue like mm. if, if you 're not even allowed in the room, like how can you mediate this and so she saw herself in this essential conciliatory role, like that it was her job to kind of lower the temperature, bring people together on this issue. But as you know, founder of Justice Democrats, you're thinking, let's not... We weren't trying to put in a, a conciliator in there. We were trying to put somebody in there who's going who's to say no. Principal and also crusader, right? And also the Iron Dome vote is the hardest of all of them because those are specifically designed to intercept incoming missiles.
2: Yeah, but wasn't it like it was just more funding for iron it, dome and it was it's not like un- they were going to run it, out
1: in 2 minutes right it wasn't mm-hmm. even planned. there was no plan that it was going to pass the senate it it was it was purely it
2: was purely symbolic it was a show from Israel a show right. we to fall can in line. get what right. we fall want. in line and the fact right. that
0: it's a billion dollars is also like that, this that's a tell round right. number <laughs> random round number is such yeah. a giveaway that that's all that it is, is It's this it, like messaging like, bill
1: it equaled like the same amount they had spent on the iron dome in like 10 years or something it was it was just a made up number and they had exhausted all
0: of the funding that had Already been um, appropriated for them. I mean, it's impossible to say, I know. But do you, so many, so much of what we try to focus on is like the systems and what leads to politicians like AOC behaving the way that they do once they get into Washington, et cetera. But there is a bit of a suggestion in the book that if she had been a bit of a different person and if she had really come in comfortable in that role of outsider, firebrand, and that was her goal, that things might have gone differently. And some of the pieces that you, you know, that you point to here are after she gets in, she doesn't really do fundraising for mm-hmm. outsider candidates. She doesn't really leverage her power on behalf of a broader movement. She's not really challenging power. She did endorse
2: some though, right? Mm-hmm. Didn't she
1: endorse some outsider candidates? And
2: then Pelosi came in with the wrath of hell. And yeah. then she
1: was like, okay, I back off. But she kept endorsing. And that's, and I talk about the contradictions in the approach. Yeah. Like she kept, so there were in twenty. 20 there was something like 110 primary challenges to incumbent democrats wow and every single one of them blamed aoc for every single one of those challenges even though...
0: When you say them, you mean all the members? The Democrats, yeah. The Democratic every, members every thought Democratic these were all member. AOC's fault. All it's AOC. like they feel
2: entitled for the club to be the yeah. club. Like, just simply because I exist here in Congress, therefore we, we're all in the same boat type right. stuff. And it's like, what if we have colossal ideological disagreement? Right. You're not just my buddy because you're in Congress right. and you're a Democrat, you know? But that that's the mindset.
1: Right. And so she would say, look, I didn't endorse 108 of these people. But to them, the, the fact that she endorsed against uh, you know, Richie Neal, in you know the Ways and Means Chairman in Massachusetts, she, and he's the most in, corrupt, right? right Lepinsky she endorsed against Quayar um, mm-hmm. down in then Texas. they're the worst of the worst, the absolute worst of the worst. But that was enough for them to say. So she, so she couldn't. She either has to like do all of them or none of them. She would, she would hope that she would be able to get credit for not doing a whole bunch of them. But see, like this is the yeah. core of the problem: is that like
2: her only power is that. You have the people. You came in there with the mandate of the people, right? That all of her power is derived from that. And when she kept making decisions that pissed off all of the grassroots that got her there, that's when now you have nobody. Now you don't have colleagues in Congress who defend you and like you, and now you don't have the grassroots on your side, and you're just like it's waffling of, in the ether, right? It's and it's like if world. you just used that bully pulpit power, because that was always the Justice Democrats' idea. As I know as a, I, as a co-founder, the idea was— You need to show them that we have this horde, this mob Mm -hmm. of angry people who are not going to compromise on these things, just like the Tea Party did, and that you guys need to fall in line. And at the very least, you need to appease us. You know, we're screaming for Medicare for all. Okay, I understand the way the world works. We're not going to get everything we want. What if that forces their hand to do a public option? And then we get public... Like, that was the whole... It's like, move the Overton window to the left. And apparently she didn't see it that way. You know what I mean? She she sort of split the difference.
1: And I think just AOC being a different kind of more confrontational kind of person doesn't quite get you there and, and i talk in the book too about how bernie has to be a different person too right like yeah. for for this thing to work you would have needed the squad to be a real thing you know coming out of the gate mm-hmm. and then to organize with bernie yes coming out of his presidential campaign and coming actually into his next presidential campaign it would have worked for him
0: yeah definitely
1: to set up they eventually did set up a Kind of some joint fundraising committees, but all they, all the money they raised just went back to the squad. They didn't really do, they didn't they didn't fundraise for Justice Democrats or yes. even for Working mm-hmm. Families Party. Like you could have brought, say, Working Families Party, Bernie Sanders, squad, any anybody who wants to be adjacent to them, like a Marie Newman, and say, you know, we're going to collectively use our resources to multiply and grow even more resources, right? So that every time. That uh, Nancy Pelosi makes fun of us in an interview. B- Bernie's whatever bucket he has set up raises half a million dollars from angry people, exactly the same way it did during the campaign, when Hillary would, you know, attack him in an unfair way. Boom, he'd raise a million dollars. It worked for Nina Turner, if you remember, when when Jim when Hillary Clinton endorsed Nina Turner's opponent, she raised like a hundred grand.
2: Mm. Mm. When
1: Clyburn raised her like a hundred grand. Um, because people are so upset at seeing the kind of institutional forces come in from the outside that they, 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 they then come in. Uh, Bernie really liked AOC and likes, you know, to this day. Like, yeah. So if it was ever going to work, it would only have worked if AOC could kind of talk him into it because as much as he is a you know political revolutionary and he did run for president inside Congress, he's always been somebody that works the system. Like people call him the amendment King from his, uh, time in the house, but to be an amendment king, you've got to
2: yeah work, work with everybody, with, mm-hmm. work
1: with work with everybody. He, people didn't, I think people had a misunderstanding of not just who AOC was, but also who Bernie was. Mm. And so you, he he would have had to be somewhat it, of a different
2: character. Th- this organizational ability of the left, it seems to be lacking. It seems to be lacking the ability for the left to like sort of put whatever petty personal differences aside like people seem to get very vindictive and there's a lot of infighting and it's not like the eyes on the prize look at the bigger goal and let's all work together and you didn't you write an article about this at the intercept that like yeah. these groups yeah. are ripping mm-hmm. each other apart well, that, on identity-based grounds in this book too.
1: yeah
2: right yeah. so like isn't there isn't there a problem there that like it mm-hmm. seems like nobody could really address it yeah. like, it just seems like it's inherent to the nature of the lefty That's it's like they always say oh, it's like oh it's like herding cats what if it is like herding cats?
1: <laughs> yes. Right? You know the what cats I mean? are never going to take over the house. Right. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. That. Yes. And I, I do get into that and the way that it intersected with their kind of inability to flex power, particularly with you're talking about this, the sunrise moment where sunrise after the occupation and then after their ability to get almost every candidate to endorse a Green New Deal uh, gets put on the task forces by Biden. And there Ron Klain is like talking to sunrise like constantly as he's developing uh, the, the the agenda, which becomes Build Back Better, and then the Inflation Reduction Act, and who knows why, like, he felt Sunrise was, like, the key to, like, keeping young people, you know, happy with what Biden was doing, and if you remember from the beginning of Biden's term to, like, June, July, he's, like, barreling stuff through, he's t- telling Republicans no, withdrawing from Afghanistan, his approval rating's super high. Over 50, yeah. People are, like, everybody's happy, but Sunrise, meanwhile, goes through this internal implosion, and so they're like their political director and others are just like missing meetings at the White House and like not not able to like deliver work product, while the White House is like, what? So how should we shape this climate thing? And that and it's Mm -hmm. some of the most important work happens in the beginning because you set the legislative agenda, and then everybody kind of fights around it, trying to move it a little bit to the right or move it a little bit to the left or carve things out of it. But the thing that is that there at the beginning is the most important part, and so they were like hobbled and like MIA for a lot of that. It could, because, like you said, like these groups just can't can't get it together.
0: Hmm. On the Bernie front, I have to ask you. I mean, it's so notable that he has yet to call for a ceasefire. He freaking Dick Durbin got ahead of him and <laughs> right. calling for a ceasefire. APAC's
1: like, first and he
0: didn't
2: endorse- a lot of outsider— uh, Oh, almost pro- never, yeah. —never endorses yeah. Democratic candidates running against incumbent Democrats. Yeah. yeah. I mean,
0: you know, Bernie is not—like, APAC has—and their affiliated PACs, they've spent money against him. I think they piloted the strategy, mm-hmm. didn't they, in the, the Iowa caucuses first, against him. First so
1: money DMFI ever spent was it's against not Bernie. a corruption wow. issue. Right.
0: I mean, is this just an ideological blind spot with I, Bernie? Do you have a read on what's y- going on there?
1: I th- yeah, I think— I think so. There, there's, a, there's a really interesting video of him in 2014. I covered
2: it. I remember, remember that. Yeah, He yeah. was his own town hall. Mm-hmm. People were like sparring with him, telling him to God call of for War. a ceasefire yeah. during Operation Protective Edge, where also it was 80 percent civilian death rate. You had over 500 kids who were killed. I think over about 1600 overall mm-hmm. uh, Palestinians were killed. And he was like same line, like, what do you want Israel to do? Yeah. What do you want them to do? They're fighting Hamas.
1: Yeah. And he's like, I don't agree with you on all of this stuff. Right. Like mm-hmm. you, you think you got the magic solution? Maybe you do. I don't. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. You're not going to like everything I agree. And then I think because the bar was so low that when he ran for president and he said, I don't like Henry Kissinger and Palestinians deserve dignity.
2: Right. And he would bring up rights. the unemployment rate in, in unemployment Gaza, rate in like Gaza. 50% unemployment rate. Mm-hmm. And people were yeah. like, oh, he cares about Palestinians. Yeah. Right.
1: And so the bar was so low that that people were just so happy to see somebody just standing up for basic human rights that they didn't ask the question of, well, what, what, does, that, what, does, what does that mean when, he's, when the chips are down? And so I was wondering, as I was kind of writing in here, what would happen if Bernie were president right now and he were not calling for a ceasefire? I've cease been thinking
0: fire? about that, too. Yeah, I've been thinking about that, too. And, you know, I don't know that his policy would really be... He might say some better things about Palestinians, maybe a little bit less...
1: Spreading misinformation like Biden, but... Right, but But
0: I don't know that the policy would actually be any different. You know, something that I'm curious your view of, Ryan, is how... How much damage, long-term damage, is the Democratic Party doing with young voters over their approach to this? And, um, you know, we're recording this before the holidays. This is just after the, the protest at mm-hmm. the DNC headquarters and cops come in and assault them. And we've got a Democratic member of Congress coming out and calling peaceful protesters for a ceasefire, calling them pro-Hamas, calling them pro terrorist lying about them being violent, etc., do you think? I mean, do you think this is the th- sort of thing that people just, you know, their mind clarifies when it's Biden versus Trump, and they move on and they vote the lesser evils again, or do you think that this is kind of a formative moment for a lot of young?
1: It is wild to Americans? see. It's wild to see Democrats saying worse things about their own voters than they've ever said. Like the worst anybody said was Hillary Clinton calling them deplorable, right? Yeah. I guess w- once in a while they'll call some elements of them racist or white supremacist or something so ultra but, yeah. MAGA. ultra <laughs> ultra mega. <laughs> how dare you ultra mega uh w- we'll see it it's going to be interesting because the i think the situation is so bleak for so many people that if you give them a reason to be cynical and check out that they might just take it uh a, a high level donor to biden was just telling me the other day that he's done um and he's like genocide is where i get off the bus and so on the one hand some people just want like are looking for a like because everything's so bleak for a way to get others are like serious i'm serious like i don't want to participate in this and it's not necessarily rational They they will agree with you that trump is worse and that yeah and that trump will uh not only be worse but also will deport you know, half yeah. the people it's at just the a DNC moral protests. red line
2: argument that's what it is. it's a moral red yeah. line argument that like there's certain things I just can't get on board with there's been some uh numbers coming out on Muslim Americans and Arab Americans and this is why like for the White House not to take this seriously is yeah. very bad because they were it was 59 percent of Muslim Americans and Arab Americans supporting biden now that number's down to under 20 yeah. percent it was like 17 or 19 percent and it's like we're talking about Like, you might lose Michigan over this specific issue. You know what I mean? Like, it could be this issue that brings you down. And never mind, like, what you brought up, the numbers among young people where they're fleeing at 1,000 miles an hour, dropped 11 points among Democrats overall since the beginning of the Gaza War. Never mind that with Latinos, there's a poll that shows he's only four up right now. But we're talking about, like, key core constituencies. And I don't know, to not take it seriously or just, like you said, act like... Well, it'll come and go. It's like a phase or whatever. It's like, (laughs) I don't know, man. I don't know. I see those videos coming. I see those pictures coming out. I hear what Netanyahu's saying. I hear what the Israeli government is doing. And like, it is not something people could just sort of overlook.
0: Yeah, I, I really feel like this is the type of searing political moment that is akin to this generation's Iraq war. I mean, the level of the protests, the amount of just fury, the eye-opening realization that this was something that's even on the table, like our tax dollars being used to fund an ethnic cleansing cleansing, while Israeli officials are out there like, we're doing an ethnic cleansing, not but 2023, am I right? And we're participating in it, but like that's on the table. I feel like, and I could turn out to be totally wrong, but I feel like it is sort of like a seminal turning point in the way that an entire generation is viewing their relationship to the Democratic Party.
1: Yeah. Because of our two-party system, it'll be interesting to see if they just check out. yeah uh, or vote if for they Cornell vote, West. Vote for Cornell yeah, West. I would say Jill RFK, Stein. but he's I a mean, psycho on Israel, I mean, too, RFK
0: right. is a psycho on Israel, but there will be plenty of people who don't really find that out.
1: Right, and also they don't care because they know he's not going to win.
0: Who are just like, Kennedy, right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: It's just Buckley's a protest too. vote. Or yeah. even Jill Stein again.
2: She's running again. You know? Yeah, and
0: she'll be on the ballot. In you lots can imagine of
2: places. she gets five percent. Cornel West gets seven percent. RFK gets sixteen percent, and it's like you know,
1: if that chaos. Ha- well, if if they if they actually reach those numbers, then RFK is like a credible challenger at that yeah, point. Yeah,
0: Because you, that, at that point, you only have to get like. 28% of yeah. the vote in order yeah. to win. It starts getting really, really crazy. Great system
2: we got here. Right? Yeah. yeah. I wanted
0: mm-hmm. you to talk a little bit about Hakeem Jeffries, um, mm-hmm. which you also talk a lot oh. about in this in this book. And I mean, one of the things that I was, I mean, I, I guess I shouldn't be shocked, but I was a little shocked is how easily everybody fell in line to support Hakeem Jeffries as, you know, the next um, leader mm-hmm. of the Democratic caucus in the House, and especially because he had been one of the top adversaries of uh, anyone on the left, and you know this issue of Israel and Palestine is very motivating to him. As you saw, he was one of the ones locking arms with other mm-hmm. um, Democrats and Republican leadership at the uh, the pro-war rally that happened here in D.C. So, talk to us a little bit about him and his ideological inclinations.
1: He's interesting because he and I tell his his origin story in in the book. His uh, his father was, I believe, a social worker who was also a kind of uh, ultra black nationalist activist. But then his uncle um, was a famous academic who worked for Cooney uh, and got embroiled in his last name's Jeffries. I'm forgetting his, his first name. Uh, you can you Google Google like uh, Cooney Jeffries uh, anti-Semitism scandal, and you'll find you'll find the the '90s. uh, Scandal that was basically he produced a bunch of like academic literature that was just wildly anti-Semitic that was talking about like the Jewish role in the slave trade and like it 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 was constructing a lot of the stuff that like anti-Semitic conspiracy theorists like have used since then and like relied on some of the anti-Semitic stuff that came it was like unquestionably like gross stuff and then Cooney tried to fire him and then it became a free speech, academic freedom
0: mm, question. Debate. City where, University of New York. Yeah, yeah, where people. a
1: bunch of people uh, around the country were like, I don't agree with what he's saying, but but yeah. tenure means something. And academic freedom means something. Um, and so Jeffries was raised amid this cauldron. Mm-hmm. And I, I suspect that he absorbed a kind of visceral hostility to some segments of the far left mm. from seeing them up close. Being like whatever that is, I, I don't want I don't want any part of this, and he has was one of the most uh, aggressive against this against the squad and the squad's expansion. You know, after after twenty eighteen, he organized his own pack that you know with with a couple others that was dedicated just to going after making sure that the squad could not expand its its ranks at all, and he would very publicly kind of. Um, go after them, like after Joyce Beatty won, be, beat a Justice Democrat in 2020, Morgan Morgan Harper. Yeah, I uh, think that's right. Uh, he was like, all right, we trounced Morgan Harper, you know, next uh, Lacey Clay is going to win re-election, and then we're going to go, Yvette Clark's going to beat somebody. You know, they started this, but we're going to finish it. And actually, Lacey Clay did not win. That's Corey Bush beat mm-hmm. Lacey Clay. Um, but he was spiking the football and like saying like, this is uh, you know, we, we've, we're, we're finishing this, was his phrase. He beat, if you remember, Barbara Lee for caucus chair in 2018. Uh, AOC and the others were, were behind Barbara Lee. And the way they beat Barbara Lee was they spread a rumor that Barbara Lee had given money to AOC during her primary challenge against Joe Crowley, who was super popular. Uh, it was dirty because she actually had later... Because like what everybody does after you win your primary, people people cut checks, mm -hmm. hey, welcome to Congress. So they used that and pretended that it happened before the primary. But if you think about it, that's an interesting thing to get indignant about because they did like her supporters did beat Joe Crowley and they were trying to take the party in a different direction. So they were stuck in this place of saying, that's not true. How dare you say? That we tried to take out Joe. That I tried to take out Joe Crowley. Right. All my supporters did, and we're trying to take the party in a different direction, and it and that really showed how little room there was for this argument that the party needs to go in a more leftward direction because even Barbara Lee wouldn't make it. All she said, her her whole thing was, you know, Black women power the Democratic Party. There should be a Black woman leadership. I gave an awesome speech right after September 11th. Like that was her, and and I've been a loyal you know party member since then. Like that was her candidacy, not. We need to get rid of corporate money. We need we need to f- uh, harness the energy of Justice Democrats and, and young people and move in a different direction. And it, Jeffrey's only beat her by like 10 votes or less. I mean, mm. He's extremely close. But once he won, then he was on a glide path to leader and, and wasn't even challenged. So
2: uh, we got to wrap it up here, but I, I want to ask you a final question. Do you see this moment with what's happening with Israel and now – Uh, You know, the growing backlash, the grassroots sentiment of, like, we want a ceasefire. 80 percent of Democrats, 66 percent of the country, 55 percent of Republicans. There's this colossal disconnect between the people and the people's house. Do you see this as potentially a tipping point where now uh, maybe you have the Justice Democrats, the squad? They're like, you know what? Now it's on. Right. Because now it's very clear we don't agree. There will be. It's almost like you're dealing with Republicans in the sense that the corporate Democrats are just agreeing with Republicans on the issue of Israel. Is that going to lead to a more aggressive, more hostile relationship, or potentially now on other issues they stake out a you know morally sound position and use that to rally the base and raise more
1: money and sort of grow this? They're going to try because it's one or the other. Like they're go- they could get wiped out. I th- yeah, and I they're going to AIPAC's
2: yeah. going to spend all the money in the world yeah.
1: to try to do that. I don't think they can beat AOC. You know, they spent millions. Against her before, she's pretty popular, like, especially with, even with Normie Democrats. Like, mm-hmm. So I don't think—and th- they don't have the ferocity that they have towards, you know, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and folks like that. But—and I think it'd be tough for them to beat Presley. All the rest, Bowman, uh, think Bush, Bowman's, Lee. I think Bowman's Summer in trouble. Lee is, Summer all, Lee barely Summer, won last Summer time. Summer Lee's in trouble. Uh, I think Rashida probably okay because— her she's district, super popular back in the yeah, district. Her district, she's very popular. And to beat to beat her with pro-Israel money, you'd have to say a lot of things that are now popular in that district. Uh, Ilhan Omar almost lost last time. That's right. She, they didn't run ads though, right? Didn't they like forego TV ads? They 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 regretted not going harder at her. <laughs> it's crazy. They were like wait, afterwards, they were like, "Whoa, we could have beaten her." And she, yeah, she only won by like three or four points, and has the same opponent this time. Cory Bush has a progressive guy, who was a grant like, and won in 2018 as a progressive prosecutor. Um, who was running for Senate and then saw the opening and is like, and he already has Reed Hoffman money and uh, AIPAC mm, a- so money. he's a
0: progressive except Palestine kind of yep, guy.
1: Exactly. 100%. So he's a totally credible, Wesley Bell, totally credible challenger. They could all lose. And they, I think they do realize that and they, and they realize they have to band together. And so if they, if they band together successfully and survive, then I think what comes out of that is, is a new thing.
0: Hmm that's very interesting
2: they got to use that bully pulpit you know they got to rally the troops get the grassroots they should actually start doing independent media now and using that it's, as it's a all you got it's all you got i know yeah
0: yeah i mean that's that's very interesting and if it works out that way also very ironic as it is ironic that actually the um, the apac money you know made a number of these members more hardened and more committed on their stance in favor of Palestinian rights is also a really interesting uh, irony, sort of yeah. twist of fate. Yeah,
1: when you're forced to study the issue, like any right-thinking person is just going to wind up where they wind up.
0: Yeah, yeah. and uh, like Kyle said, they're never they're, there's a very clear realization, like, that AIPAC money is never going to be right. on my side. They're never going to yeah. stop coming from me, so I may as well actually be correct on the issue and support what, you know— many Democrats and certainly many, many young Democrats actually want to see me say. so. Yep. Um,
2: Hold up the book for everybody. Book everybody check out this squad. book. Crystal read the whole thing, by the way. Well, did you finish almost. it or did you're very close? I'm on close? page
0: 267. That's far, And she's That's a pretty... fast
2: reader. She did it in like three or
0: four <laughs> days. I was like, Must Jesus Christ,
1: book. you're cruising through it's great that. Book. <laughs> it's a
0: great book. Yeah. Great read. I mean, it's, it's some parts of people to relive. but yeah. uh,
1: It's technically out the, uh, December 5th, but you can actually get it in bookstores ahead of that.
2: Okay, so yeah. by the time this drops, it'll still be people.
1: Because Crystal and, Chris said, and, and I are doing politics Store. and prose that's on right. the 27th, and that's in D.C., and you'll be able to buy it there. So if you go to a bookstore ahead of that and say, hey, do you have this book? Like What's they'll, with they'll the the- tell it to you. It's not embargoed. Like Some books are embargoed for mm, like, the, right day the day they're out. the day. This one, when it's ever seen, you can get it.
2: Politics and prose, busboys and poets. What's with like the, the two DC. names, like go <laughs> The DC institutions.
0: i have actually I'm okay. opening a
2: store called Dixon Balls. This shows you <laughs>
0: what a non-DC insider I am. Not only have I never, like, moderated one of these discussions, so this will be my first time, but also I've never even been to one of wow. them, so this is really my it's first time. It's an institution, time, so. yeah. Yeah, so if yeah. you want to, you know, engage a more experienced moderator, my feelings will not be hurt. But, no. uh, yeah.
1: I, I, I think you know how to moderate.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we'll be able to pull it together. Yeah. Um, Ryan, always great to see you. Thank you for so much. Likewise. Congrats guys. on the book.
2: Thanks yeah. for having us, man. Thanks, what? guys. Thank you for coming in. Yeah, yeah. mean, thanks yeah. for having <laughs> us. All right, here we go. <laughs> Ending on a professional note for, for having you right here.